Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith. And currently, we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter 12. Two weeks ago, we looked at, what was it, the call of Abraham or the call of Abram. Uh, Last week, it was about Abram arrives in Canaan. This week, we're going to be talking about uh, Abram in Egypt. Abram is going to become Abraham later on. Uh, several chapters from now, so I'm trying to be consistent about using his name as it is right now with Abram, and then later on, uh, that's kind of an interesting and fun study as we look at his name change when we get there. So Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20 is what we're going to be looking at today, (laughs) 10 through 20. By way of review, just a little bit, you'll remember that verse 10 was actually the tail end of the study of last time. Our study last time was having to do with Abram arriving in Canaan, and we looked at four different places that he ended up stopping in. We ended up seeing that he stopped at Shechem, and then he went to an area between Bethel and Ai. After that, he went down to the south, the desert area of the Negev, and then after that, he went to Egypt. That was verse 10. Mm-hmm. Verse 10, then a little bit of overlap. We're going to be doing that verse as our starting point or our kicking off point here for this study. Somebody mind reading verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So there was a famine in the land. I'm going to start off actually by writing on the board here just a famine. This is not an actually uncommon in uh, in the book of Genesis where you have people moving because of a famine, especially in the, the patriarch stories. You end up having these, these famines because the land of Canaan was actually very dependent on rainfall. You had the area of the Mesopotamia uh, region that was the Tigris and Euphrates. They had those significant rivers. So for the most part, you could get by without uh, as much dependency on rain as they might have in Canaan because they had the rivers. In Egypt, they have the Nile, and every year you would um, be able to have the Nile overflow its banks, and it would give that wonderful silt that uh, the plants would just thrive and flourish over there. So you'd have your grains and, and whatnot that you know you weren't de- as dependent on rainfall. Here in Canaan, it's a different situation. It's largely dependent on rainfall. And so on years that you don't have rains, or on years that you have rains at the wrong time, Maybe they come too early or they come too late. It's going to result in in problems for those grains that you're dependent on for living. Your animals need those grains. Your family needs those grains. And if you don't have those grains, you're going to be hungry. You're going to go hungry. And so for the most part, like I said, traveling or or going outside of Canaan to uh, find some other place where you could find some food or whatnot, it's not uncommon in some of these stories that we'll be looking at as we move through Genesis. A couple of interesting things, too, about this verse. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. This is actually attested to outside of the Bible. This kind of activity is, is something that you don't need to rely just on the Bible to find out. And it's kind of neat to see these other places mentioning the same kind of things because it helps us to trust God's word even more. You know, if there's a person who's sitting on the fence, well, how much of this is actually made up and how much of this is true? You find out time and time again, you can trust the whole thing. So it's kind of neat here. Modern archaeologists and geologists have apparently found a massive 300-year drought cycle during the time of Abraham. 
So uh, that was kind of neat to find that, that this is attested to outside the Bible. You also find the Egyptian papyrus Anastasi VI reports of an entire clan going down into Egypt during a drought or during a famine as well. And then another one, you have a later Egyptian text from the reign of Merneptah, notes that the Egyptians had finished letting the Bedouin tribes of Edom and the land of Canaan come down into their area to find water for their flocks and herds and whatnot. And then finally, another one, a famous tomb that's been found in, uh, people can go visit, I'll show you some pictures of it in just a minute. A famous painting in the tomb of Numhotep III at Beni Hassan, which is about 150 miles north of Cairo from the time of Sesosterus II, shows the arrival of 37 Asiatics, or the people from Canaan, men, women, and children. Some of the pictures that you can find about this, in fact, uh, right here is a picture of these tombs. This is in Egypt. This is 150 miles, like it says, 150 miles north of Cairo. And these are the tombs on the hill. So you see the Nile right there. And then you just see those little black dots. Those are actually the entrances to the tombs, and one of them being the tomb of Numhotep III. As you get here, here's another picture of a tourist getting ready to go inside to check out the tomb. Next picture I have here is actually inside. The room that's inside this tomb, at least the room that's in this picture, is about the size of that courtroom out there. It's really pretty close to the dimensions of that courtroom out there. So you can see on the walls, there's lots of paintings, right? Lots of wall paintings, paintings inside the tomb of lots of things going on. Here's another picture. Same room, same view, but uh, now you've got some people, so you kind of get a little bit of a scale for that corner of the room there. All right. So right here is a particular area, particular area on the walls of uh, showing a, a particular scene. And the scene that's in the middle right here, and I'll show you a close-up of it as we go, actually shows foreigners entering the land of Egypt, and they're bringing gifts for the uh, person who's in charge, and they're also bringing some of their wares for trade and whatnot and their lifestyle. Here's a little bit of a close-up right here of the women on that picture. And they are able to determine, apparently, that these are people from the areas uh, surrounding or, or consisting of Canaan, uh, because of their dress and because of their footwear and because of the implements that they're bringing and stuff like that. So it's kind of interesting to see that. And then uh, here's kind of a little bit of a cleaned up rendition of it where it shows just the panel that we're most interested in. So you have during that time, you're showing that people from that area are coming down to Egypt. And uh, so it's not uncommon. And this is something that's historically accurate and that we can trust our Bible again. All right. So it's kind of neat looking at stuff like that. So here you have just, in my mentioning in just the last few minutes, four different mentions of things outside the Bible attesting to the, the believability and the trustworthiness of God's word. I like that kind of stuff. I like being able to see that, you know, this isn't just words on a page. This isn't just some mythological document that some people would want you to believe. But this is actually founded in history, based in history, rooted in history, and it's trustworthy in that regard. So pretty neat in that regard. Uh, like I mentioned, famine forced the migration of several people in the book of Genesis. You'll find that it was the cause of a migration for Abraham and his descendants here in this chapter. You find later in uh, chapter 26, Isaac ends up having to move out of the land because of a famine. And then Jacob in chapters 42 and then uh, again in 47. In 42, he ends up sending his sons down to Egypt to get grain. And then in 47, they end up moving to Egypt because of the famine at that time. By the way, when you're looking at that verse, Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, it says, Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell. My version says dwell. Some of yours might say uh, to live there. The Hebrew word behind that, uh, behind the English translation, it's a verb. It's gur. G-U-R is the way we would uh, spell it, I guess, in English. And it's, uh, that's the verb form. Geir or gear is the noun form. And it's basically a dwelling that's temporary. 
All right? It's a sojourning. So when it says that Abram went down to Egypt, it's not that he went down there and he, you know, he intended to move there and live there permanently. He's just there temporarily. He's just sojourning in the land of Egypt, hoping to ride out this famine because God's promised him a different land. He's a citizen of a different place. Abram is a citizen of a different place. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10 kind of talks about this a little bit. It says, by faith he, this is speaking of Abram, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents. Remember, we talked about tents last week. Tents being the temporary structures that they are. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob and heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abram was a sojourner. He was a traveler. He recognized that his place of permanence wasn't in Egypt. All right. We are sojourners. We are travelers as well. We should recognize that our place in this life here on earth, it's not meant to be permanent. If somebody's trying to sell you an idea that this life is all there is, no, that's not actually accurate. This life, as the Bible would teach it, is but a vapor. This life is just passing and fleeting. It's just a very small slice of our eternal existence. We should treat this life as wanderers and travelers, recognizing that our citizenship isn't here. Our citizenship, if you're a follower of God, is where God's kingdom is, all right? So we're just passing through this life. We're just sojourners here, just like Abram was a sojourner in Egypt at this time. Genesis chapter 12, verse 11. Somebody mind uh, reading that? When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance. Excellent. Thank you. So I'm going to put up here, main characters move to Egypt. All right. And so we learned something also from this verse about Sarai. What does it say about Sarai? Beautiful. She's beautiful. What's interesting about that, though? Is it that she's beautiful? There's something in conjunction with that. We learned from our study two weeks ago, as we uh, just were opening up this chapter, that Abram moves down to Canaan, or moves from Haran over to the land of Canaan at about 75 years old. At about 75 years old, he makes that move. He's married to Sarai. We find out Sarai is actually 10 years younger than Abram. Sarai is 65. Sarai is 65 and attractive. She's beautiful. All right? So we find from this verse here, it came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. She's so beautiful that he's got concerns about them moving to Egypt. That's kind of interesting. She, she's fine. All right? She's, all right, there's something about her. That's, there's issues with Sarai being beautiful that causes hesitation. You're going to find out as we get to, when we get to the next verse that his hesitations are based on her beauty. All right? It's not common that you would end up finding somebody being described physically in the Bible. There are a few places. You end up finding David is described. Joseph's physical appearance is, is described. You have Rebecca and Rachel and Tamar and Saul. Those are a few of them that are mentioned. But for the most part, physical appearance isn't something that the Bible writers end up dwelling upon a lot. All right? So something about 65-year-old Sarai making her beautiful. I don't know. I don't know what's up with that. All right? Uh, (laughs) We do find out that Sarai ends up living to be 127 years old. So this is midlife for her. All right? So at midlife, she's, she's a beautiful woman. 
All right. The words that are used to describe her beauty, in Hebrew, it's a combination of yape and mare. All right? You put these words together, and that's the phrase that's used to describe her beauty. But I need to caution you that the, that combination of words isn't just used to describe female beauty. For example, those, that combination is also used to describe David's looks. All right? So it could be male or female. In fact, that combination, that same combination of words is used to describe a cow, <laughs> all right, later on in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 41 too. So what a fine cow you got there. Mmm, <laughs> that's a good-looking cow, all right? So the words can be used to describe other things than just a woman's beauty, all right? So you've got, you've got a woman's beauty as a possibility, a male's be- uh, appearance or attractiveness, and a, and a cow. Walter Kaiser Jr. ends up saying, the criteria for beauty, particularly in the case of older women may have been substantially different in the ancient Near East from the standards we value today. All right. So what they evaluated or esteemed as beautiful and what we might esteem as beautiful, there could be some differences. With that, I want to introduce something that, uh, an activity, all right. When you teach little kids, you have like an arts and craft time or a drawing yeah. time, all right. We're going to do that a little bit today. If you can take one and pass the rest down, all right. I'm going to lead you through a quick drawing activity. So here's a bunch of pens as well. You can take one and pass the rest of those down as well. What I'm going to do is, I've, you'll see, I've given you a template. And it's basically a template of what you'll see is a, a head and a neck and shoulders and whatnot. And I'm going to give you the criteria you need for filling it in to make a beautiful woman according to one of the writers of the Bible. All right? So we're going to find out from one of the writers of the Bible what makes a woman beautiful. All right? So get ready. We're going to be talking about eyes and hair and teeth and lips and uh, even a temple. and that. So you're going to see what we're going to end up with. For first, here we go. So the eyes, this is a beautiful woman according to the Bible. The eyes, doves. Doves. You're going to make her eyes look like doves. Not doves' eyes, but look like doves. All right, so, and you get 20 seconds. We're going to make this fast, all right? So make her eyes look like doves. All right. Not a good artist. We're not, yeah, we're just looking. This is just your rough draft, okay? You can you can make it extra beautiful later. People are like, I can't draw doves. All right, you ready for the next one? Hair. Get ready to draw her hair. This is what you use for the model for her hair. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. All right? Flock of goats. Flock of goats for hair. Mm, this is one fine woman. Flock of goats. Sherry's still like, I still don't know how to do the dove. Just add some horns, maybe. All right. Hair like a flock of goats. <laughs> this is beauty right here. This guy right. did not get a job at Hallmark. That's <laughs> yeah. Beauty's in the eye yeah. of the beholder. Steve's yeah. still stuck. He's like, I don't even know where to begin with this thing. <laughs> I can't draw goats. I can't draw birds. I mean, if I, if I was to say draw a beautiful woman, we might be able to come up with something on our own because we have this idea of what beauty looks like in our modern uh, way of thinking. <laughs> But uh, using the descriptions they give in the Bible, it's a little different. All right? So hair is like a flock of goats. How about teeth? Get ready for teeth. Here we go. Teeth. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep. All right? So you did go. Now you got shorn sheep for your teeth. Oh, that's my Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep which have come up from the washing Every also one of which bears twins, and none is barren among them. <laughs> so really white. They must be white. I don't know. I'm not going to stuff white, up. Yeah, like white. 
Shorn sheep. So just think, if you're in love, right? If you're in love in the Bible times and you, you're trying to describe your mm, uh, fine woman, you know, this this is the description you come up with? <laughs> oh, really? All right, your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep which have come up from the washing, every one of which was, bears twins. That, that's got to be like a color based upon, you know... <laughs> Who knows, right? Back then, I would imagine they didn't have good oral hygiene. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, lips. Next one is lips. Your lips are like a thread. <laughs> Your lips are like a scarlet thread. Thin lips. Thin lips, apparently. Thin lips. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. With all those shorn sheep in them. All right. <laughs> You can see as I gave you the template uh, to use that the nose is, it, you know, kind of positioned in such a way that you can maybe draw something for the near the side of the head. Here it says your temples, right? Your temples up here? Yeah. Your temples are like pomegranate. <laughs> like a piece of pomegranate. <laughs> what is that? Does she have acne? What's going yeah. on here? Pomegranate. It's big red knot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> pomegranate. I think that's, a, yeah, that's probably another coloring that just got a little glow or something. Maybe, like yeah, maybe it's... I don't know. And if we're going for color, that each of these are adding a color of some sort to our drawing. Look at Dave, he's so proud. <laughs> <laughs> I like that temple there. Oh, two of them. Good job. Oh, the temple's on two, right? Yeah, it's on the temple. All right, the next one, your neck. All right, get ready to draw something on the neck here. Your neck is like the Tower of David. <laughs> The Tower of David. Just picture a, a tower for a fortress or something. That's the neck. What David's tower look like? Yeah. Blocks of stone, I would imagine. But Apparently it was beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like that hair. Esther's got the hair going. <laughs> wow, look at that. <laughs> We're not done yet, though. We got another one. Uh, let's see. Your neck is like the Tower of David built for an army. Or built for an armory on which it hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Um, next one, your two breasts are like two fawns. Okay, I guess we don't need to do yeah. there. <laughs> but this is a description of beauty as according to the Bible. This is right out of the book of Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. All right, you find this in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. So if you're wondering what do they consider beautiful back in the Bible days, I don't know that this passage helps us a lot. Because if you were to hold up your picture, like Esther's, for example, if you were to take that picture and go out into a crowd and say, what word do you use to describe this? You would be asking for a long, long time before I bet you'd find somebody that says beauty. All right? Unless you're a third grader bringing that picture home to mom, you're going to have a hard time finding somebody to say, oh, that's beautiful, Junior. You know? <laughs> that's pretty much the only person who's going to give you that. All right? So uh, the picture of beauty back then was obviously, I would say, I would suggest to you, there's obviously something perhaps in addition to physical appearance that might have to do with beauty. All right? Esther, there we go. <laughs> oh, yeah, I like that. Oh, look, look at that. that. Wow. That's beautiful, dear. Fabulous. Comment on that, though. Sure. The descriptors that they're using, right. I have a feeling that part of it might be from the fact that they would understand, the readers back then would understand right. more than we would, right. because right. they were in an agrarian environment or society. Sure. So when we see a shock of a flock of sheep coming down a hillside, to us we're thinking a bunch of animals on the side of the hill. To them it's going to bring a different vision. Sure. 
than it would to us, just because of their background and environment. It, it, they might relate to it better than what we do today. Absolutely. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I think that's exactly right, that what we consider beautiful nowadays isn't necessarily the same as they considered back then to be beautiful. Excellent observation. You, you bet. Peter helps us a little bit in the New Testament. He ends up talking about beauty a little bit. He says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. And the neat thing about this passage, in verse 5 it says, For in this manner in former times the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham. So it's kind of neat. One of the things that he, he put Sarah right there in that passage saying that, Beauty, it shouldn't just be an outward thing. In fact, beauty should be emphasized mostly on the inside and then the outward to follow. Okay, so uh, be careful about beauty being only outward or only external in our lives. We need to recognize that beauty is internal uh, more, in God's sight anyway, is internal more than it is external. So what made Sarai attractive? We don't know. There was there was a physical appearance about it. There was something about her physical appearance at 65 years old. But maybe it's not exactly the same physical appearance uh, that we would esteem as being beautiful. Okay, maybe it's not voluptuous and these big red lips and the you know the cheeks being a certain way or the hair being a certain way. Maybe it was a manner. Maybe it was a way that she carried herself. Maybe it was a way that she behaved. Maybe it was a way, like this passage says, that she obeyed or submitted herself to her husband. Whatever it was, there was something that he was concerned about in going down there with her being as beautiful as she was. You know, those tomb paintings that I showed you, one of the interesting things I read in the article that was talking about it is that in the tomb paintings, everywhere that there was an Egyptian, they were painted with red skin in the paintings on the walls. And the foreigners were painted with yellow skin. Okay, and so the foreigners would come visit, and the painter paints them with yellow skin. The Egyptians have red skin. Oh, but when you get to the Egyptian rulers, their female counterpart, the the female of their choice that they want next to them, has yellow skin. I don't know if that means that they preferred to have a foreigner, or if they prefer their their women to look like the women of foreigners. But it maybe lends a little bit of a an understanding here of maybe this was something that Abram recognized was an issue down there, something that was to be expected that they'll notice you, right? That you're going to stand out. That maybe there's this rumor going through the land that if you go to Egypt, you just got to realize you got to deal with this, all right? So he ends up proposing in verses 12 and 13 what he thinks is a great idea. Somebody might reading verses 12 and 13. Actually, let's just do uh, verse 12 for starters. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Ooh, that doesn't sound like a good day, right? His concern is, if we go down there, they're going to kill me. You're so beautiful, they're going to kill me. There's something about the way she looks that he's concerned about taking his clan down there or the number of people that he's got with him. I'm going to end up writing up here that there's a danger now. There's a danger of death for the male, right? Danger of death for the male. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Verse 13, somebody might reading that one. Please say you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. All right. Do you catch what's going on here? This is kind of weird, huh? <laughs> Honey, we're going to move down to Egypt, and I want you to do this favor for me. You're so beautiful, I want you to say you're my sister. And we look at that and go, that's kind of weird. 
And the thinking is perhaps what he's anticipating is that she is desirably attractive for some in some manner, in some way, enough that he's anticipating that they'll probably notice her and that perhaps his life might be threatened, that somebody might be willing to kill him and take his wife. And somehow the solution is to say, we're brother and sister. What? How does that solve anything? There's an interesting passage that's later on in Genesis where you actually have a brother negotiating the marriage of his sister, Rebecca and Laban. All right, Laban ends up doing the negotiating, and he ends up being in the position where, as the brother, he can negotiate his sister's marriage. That's kind of strange. Do you have a situation anywhere else in the Bible where somebody's husband is killed because somebody in power wants the woman. Mm-hmm, exactly right. David. David looks out, sees a beautiful woman, Bathsheba. Mm, I want her. Oh, she's married. Okay, let's see. What can I do about that? Oh, I know. Let's just kill him. All right. Obviously, condensed version of the story right there. But yeah, he ends up having the husband killed so he can have the wife. So maybe this is a similar situation to what Abram is anticipating is going to happen to them when they get to Egypt. So he decides he wants her to say, you're my sister. All right. If I were the woman, I'd say, let's just both die a famine. <laughs> there you, know, you go. You know, right. I don't want to yeah. be these Egyptians. When you think about it, I mean, what were their choices? I mean, perhaps in Abram's mind, he's thinking, well, if we stay here, we're going to die of famine. Or if we go down there, well, at least we'll have some food. But I might die, you know, by somebody killing me unless we work out this special arrangement that uh, you just claim to be my sister. By the way, the interesting thing is we'll end up finding in chapter 20. Go to chapter 20 and look at verse 12. Somebody might read chapter 20, verse 12. Okay. But indeed, she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. This is actually Abram talking here. By this time, he's Abraham. He's talking here. In fact, the scenario that he's bringing this up in is the same scenario. They end up going to another place in front of another ruler, and he ends up on the way saying, hey, just like we did in Egypt, let's do it here. If anybody asks, just say you're my sister. Oh, by the way, in that passage in chapter 20, he doesn't say anything about her being beautiful, so I don't know if she's still beautiful by then or not. But anyway, so they get over to this other place, and they have the same arrangement, and he gets caught on it. And he ends up getting grilled on it, and he ends up having to give a response. And the response is, well, she actually is my half-sister. She's the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And so you might be thinking, how does that work? (laughs) All right. So it's either the daughter of another woman, or the language could actually also be used to say that perhaps she's adopted, okay, that she may have been adopted in the family. It's not known for sure which of those arrangements it was, if if it was one of those two. But it's a strange arrangement nonetheless. So you've got him marrying who ends up being his his half-sister, okay? And like I said, you find this not just in Abraham and Sarah's life here in chapter 12. You find it in Abraham and Sarah's life in chapter 20. And then you also find his son Isaac does the same thing with Rebecca later on in chapter 26. So this is three times in the book of Genesis where a husband-wife team comes up with this plan to say we're brother-sister, to try to get out of something or try to avoid trouble. Isn't it strange how we try to come up with our own ideas of what is going to work? Like we're going to help out God. You know, When I'm looking at this story, one of the things you're not seeing anywhere in this so far is Abraham prayed to God and God said, do this. Abraham prayed to God and God said, pretend you're brother and sister. You don't see that in this story. It sounds like they're neglecting that looking to God to see what maybe he wants them to do. 
that maybe they're not trusting in the Lord with all their heart, leaning mm-hmm. not on their own understanding. Right? So sure. God hasn't shown up in the story yet. It doesn't sound like anybody's asking God's advice or, or God's wisdom or, or what, what they should be doing. The IVP Bible background commentary ends up saying this about this. The logic is possibly that if an individual in power desired to take a woman into his harem, he might be inclined to negotiate with a brother, but he would be more likely to eliminate a husband. All right. One of the neat things, too, about this story is we end up getting a picture or a glimpse of Abraham, or Abram as it was, of a person who you could say, all right, so he's not perfect. Right? I mean, you look at the Abram that you know up until this point, you're going, man, that is a hero of the faith. That guy's got it going on. Look at that guy's life. He's trusting God. He's moving to places he's never even been before. And then you get here, and you're going, what? That's crazy. What are you doing? And it kind of gives us a little bit of a hope, too, in the sense that that sounds like something crazy. That sounds like something worse than I would do. And we start to evaluate ourselves in conjunction with, how am I doing according to Abraham's standard? Well, first off, the standard isn't Abraham. The standard is God's standard. We should be following God's standard. But it helps you to see that God can use imperfect people in accomplishing a perfect will. He can make things happen according to what his plan is using people that make bad choices. I'm one of those. He can do something with me? Well, apparently so. If you look through it at the book of Genesis, one person after another, mistake, mistake, bad choices, bad choices, and it helps us to see this is the kind of people that God can work with. So maybe he can work with me too. People that can make bad choices. Verse 14. Somebody mind reading verse 14. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. All right, so would you agree with me that this was Abram's expected outcome? That you would say verse 14? If we could sum it up and say expected? Yeah. Yeah, it it seems like, yeah, he he knew what was going to happen and it's happening. How about verse 15, though? Somebody mind reading that one? When Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. Excellent. Thank you, Dave. Maybe if verse 14 was expected... I don't know if verse 15 was. Maybe Abram's anticipation was, you know what, we're going to go down there, our caravan's going to go rumbling through the neighborhood, people are going to take notice, they're going to see you're a beautiful woman, let's say you're a brother and sister. And maybe it was to the common folk that he wasn't too concerned, but Pharaoh's officials notice, and they take Sarai. I'm sure Abram's probably at this point going, I didn't expect that to happen. (laughs) You know? Oops. (laughs) This just got a little bit bigger than I expected. All right, so it seems like verse 14, maybe expected verse 15, um, maybe unexpected. I'm going to put up here, held against will. Verse 15, held against will. By the way, Pharaoh, the Hebrew word for Pharaoh actually means great house. All right, so this is kind of a little, it's kind of fun at the end of this verse when they take him to Pharaoh's house or take her to Pharaoh's house. They're taking her to the great house house. <laughs> Weird. Two different words for house there, but great house and then house because Pharaoh means great house. It's kind of like we have in the English. I mean, if you think that's kind of weird, we have that in English. You sometimes find people that use the word, you know, white house or the phrase white house in synon- being somewhat synonymous with the president. Mm-hmm. Hey, if you violate that law, you're going to be on the bad list with the white house. You know, and you think, what? what are they? No, it's not that the building has anything against you. It's that the president may frown upon you if you, you know, violate that particular law, that kind of thing. Regarding uh, going down there then and his plan, Kenneth Matthews ends up saying, but the folly of Abram's plan was in its consequences. Although he would save his life, he jeopardized his future by placing at risk Sarai, the mother of the promised son. All right. So you remember, he's already had a promise. 
that you, we're going to make a great nation of you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a land. And he's probably like, and I'm starving in Canaan. How's that going to happen? So there's probably some of that idea going through his head. How is this going to happen? How is God going to follow through on his promises if I'm dead? Verse 16, somebody might reading that. He treated Abram well for his sake. He had sheep, oxen, all male donkeys, sorry, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Good deal. Thank you, Mike. A lot of times you would have somebody who would provide a bridal gift. If they were to take a woman to be their bride, they would provide a bridal price. That's not actually what this is. That language is actually not here in this passage. This sounds like it's more like compensation for something taken. All right. So you've got the person in charge going, oh, I'll take that one. And, uh, uh, you know, give the man some gifts for me taking his sister. All right. So he provides these lavish gifts. By the way, this is wealth. I mean, this is great riches. And when you're talking camels, regarding camels, it wasn't too long ago that some of the critical scholars thought that can't trust the Bible because of that passage right there. It says camels. Camels weren't domesticated until later. Uh, but it turns out, no, they've found archaeological evidence that shows camels were actually domesticated at this point, but they were so rare that they were considered extremely lavish or extravagant. All right. In fact, the New King James Study Bible notes say, some critical scholars used to think that camels were not domesticated nearly so early as this. They viewed the term camels as an error. It is now known that camels had been domesticated, although rarely they represented great wealth. To have a camel in this period was like having an expensive limousine, is what it ends up saying in the, in the notes there. Uh, that's kind of cool. And then verse 17, we have the introduction of the hero of the story. It's not Abram. It's not his wife. It's not his sister. It's not Pharaoh. It's the Lord himself. The Lord himself. Abram gets himself into a pickle, and the Lord ends up working it out. All right. So in verse 17, but the Lord, this is Yahweh, this is Jehovah, but the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Put up here, plagues on Pharaoh and on other Egyptians, right? On his house. All right. So the Lord ends up getting involved now. The Lord ends up sending plagues. Uh, actually, this is the same word that can be used to describe the 10 plagues that we find in the book of Exodus. That's kind of interesting. Back then, plagues were considered a message from the divine. So if somebody experienced skin diseases or some other plagues, the assumption was that the gods are trying to tell us something and that we're making the gods unhappy. Let's try to figure out what's going on. And we don't know what kind of divination they were trying to engage in to figure out what's going on and why are we getting plagued like this. But somehow, somehow Pharaoh ends up coming to the conclusion that it is regarding Sarai. He says in verse 18, and Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? We don't know how he found out, but he did. Uh, Walter Kaiser Jr. ends up saying, Absolute truthfulness was an important feature of Egyptian ethics. All right. So here we have in verse 18, you have Pharaoh angered. All right. So he's mad. He's angered. He, he, he calls Abram in. He ends up asking Abram questions that Abram never answers. It's almost as if he asks the questions rhetorically and then kicks them out of the land. He's like, why'd you do this? Get out of here. All right. So verse 18, Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Verse 19, why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. Take her and go your way. So I'm going to put up here, Pharaoh relents. Pharaoh relents. And Victor P. Hamilton ends up saying regarding this, he says, when you compare Pharaoh and, and Abram side by side here, it's as if Abram doesn't look too good, right? Here's this pagan guy, pagan ruler, who recognizes that uh, it would be improper for him to take this man's wife. He's recognizing that adultery 
there's a moral uh, faux pas there in committing adultery. This is out of a pagan ruler. So when you compare his qualms about doing such a thing with Abram's activities, Abram's behavior, Victor P. Hamilton says, in fact, Pharaoh exemplifies a higher degree of moral sensitivity than does the patriarch. The Egyptian emerges rather saintly, but Abram, the one in whom the Egyptians and other nations are to be blessed, appears rather sinister. And then verse 20, so Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So I'm going to end up by putting here, the main characters leave Egypt with riches. All right, so that's verse 20, verses 10 through 20. By the way, when you're, <laughs> when you're looking at this, this sent him away, that phrase is actually used of God kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden. All right, that's like, get out of here. <laughs> All right, you're not allowed anymore. That's the same phrase that's used here. It's also the same phrase that's used later to describe Pharaoh's releasing, the later Pharaoh, releasing the children of Israel out of Egypt at the time of the Exodus. In fact, do you see any parallels between this story and the story later at the time of the Exodus? Famine. Do you have famine in the later story? How about the main characters moved to Egypt? Yeah. How about danger of death for male? You remember that part of the story in the book of the... Kill all the, baby, all the male babies. Throw them in the How about held against their will? Were they? Yeah, they were held against their will in the next story, right? Plagues on Pharaoh and all the other... That's in the Exodus account. Pharaoh angered. Oh, that was clear. Pharaoh relents. Yeah, finally he's like, ugh. And then at the end, main characters leave Egypt with great riches. Every once in a while you hear me say a phrase... Prophecy is pattern, okay? Prophecy is pattern. And without something like this, people tend to think, what does that mean? This is what it means. Sometimes prophecy is predicting the future, all right? You've got the person who speaks, thus saith the Lord, blah, 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 fill in the blank, and that happens. Yes, is that prophecy? Absolutely. But there's another component to prophecy, which is sometimes a pattern is laid, and then that pattern repeats later on. Is that prophecy? Absolutely. The Bible has both. The Bible teaches both. These are a little harder to see. That's why it's kind of neat in a Bible study when you could talk about it and write it on the board and everybody can see, oh my goodness, I see it. There's a pattern there. It's prophetically going to be played out again in the future. In fact, there's another author of the commentaries. One of the other ones says it's played out again in the Babylonian exile. It's just Egypt has moved to Babylon and you have some of these similarities going on in there as well. You end up finding things in the Old Testament. Have you ever heard this phrase? The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. And the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. You have these patterns in the Old Testament which have bearing on your life and mind in the New. In this day and age, we can look back and not just at the New Testament, look back at your Old Testament and find out what is God saying to me. Don't limit what is God saying to me to Matthew through Revelation. It's what is God saying to me from Genesis to Revelation. Okay, so what are some of the things that we can take with us today? Let me sum up with some of these. Number one, we are sojourners just like Abram. Sojourners just like Abram. Philippians 3.24, our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, beauty is so much more than our outward appearance. Proverbs 31, one of the great chapters, talks about a beautiful woman, right, or a, a woman of God. Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. A third thing we can learn from today's study, fear of man will prove to be a snare. Abram came up with this great idea because he was afraid 
of what was going to happen. He was afraid what man could do to him. Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Instead, we should be trusting in God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And then Jesus taught a similar principle. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Oh, what things? Food. Food, clothing, right? It's food, clothing, and drink. Abraham's need? Food. <laughs> right? Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. And then finally, there's no divine condemnation for Abram in this story. God doesn't say at the end of the story, Abram, that was a dumb idea. There's no condemnation for Abram. We look at him and we go, that, Abram, that was a dumb idea. But God doesn't join us in that voice. It's not articulated there. You know what I'm saying? That a follower of God is going to make choices, and some of them are going to be good, and some are going to be bad. We're going to sin. For us, us in this room, if you're a follower of God, you're not without sin. You're going to make bad choices, and you're going to stumble, and you're going to fall, just like Abram stumbled and fall. But you know what? If you're a follower of God, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. All right, so lots of things to learn from this study. Let's close in a quick prayer. All right, here we go. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you, Lord, for the food, the meat of your word. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to take it with us and to uh, ruminate on it, to chew it, and to dwell upon it. And help us, Lord, to be changed as a result of spending time with you today. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.